Hello and welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 90. This episode is the second part of my series on transitional albums for bands. So in the first half we looked at a load of albums that where bands went from one sound that was very successful to something they pulled up incredibly well and then put out an album where they completely kind of moved between genres, even in some cases inventing totally new ones that were kind of maybe not always well received, but at least something that seemed to prove to be a well-advised sound for the band um, and this second part is going to continue on in very much that same vein as before. Um, first band I'm going to cover on it, I have actually covered these albums before on the podcast on our Eric Records episode two years ago but honestly they're so good I want a chance to go over them in, in a bit more detail. So the first kind of transition we're going to cover is Entombed starting with their second album Clandestine. So obviously when talking about Entombed I won't be having anything massively new to the discussion. In fact most of the interesting points I'm going to bring up are mainly taken from Daniel Eckroff's excellent Swedish death metal book. But anyway let's uh, let's continue on as if I might have something interesting to say. So you probably know Entombed got wildly successful off their debut album Left Hand Path released on Eric Records in 1990. For a death metal album coming out in Sweden, it was going to absolutely revolutionary and really kind of set the pace for the, the genre as a whole. Like, um, like Nicky Anderson's incredible songwriting and, and LG Petrov's like amazing kind of very different to the American vocal approach. Truly revolutionary. I mean, the stuff that did come out of their demos and so on, which were also, you know, very well regarded but they had definitely set themselves up at a point going into the second album clandestine um we've we're kind of an impossible task of topping a debut and to add kind of insult to injury um due to a kind of childish falling out uh nicky anderson fired lg from the band and resolved <laughs> in this this issue of trying to find a new vocalist for the most successful death metal band in Sweden at the time. So they'd messed around on the, the Cruel EP that came out between these two albums in 19, early 1991. They got in the vocalist of uh, Nirvana 2002 over Strathstrom um, to, to help out on vocal duties, who, who was a great fit for the band. The the two like new tracks on that, that EP sound amazing, but he decided to go focus on Nirvana 2002 and... Sadly, that project fizzled out after just a couple of demos. Uh, absolutely excellent quality, but yeah, like, so never made it to the full length. So they recruited their friend in to, uh, to add vocal duties, and turns out in the studio they weren't up for it. So in the end, the the album has uh, Nicky Anderson performing the majority of the vocals. What's really interesting about Clandestine, so it's a year after... Um, uh, left hand path so they, they haven't had a massive amount of time in between and the band have been touring to some extent i think the really intensive touring will follow this release but a lot of things are set up in a similar way back in the same sunlight studio again it's another dan seagrave album cover but what's really interesting is and the rumors that kind of circulate around this was nicky anderson was kind of getting a bit bored by death metal so was trying to do stuff that really challenged him. So whereas Left Hand Path are these like very immediate, like supremely kind of catchy songs for the most part, and often like structurally more simplistic, um, Clandestine is completely all over the place structurally. The songs are so impossibly complex. Apparently they're taking a large amount of um, influence from bands like Atheist, but they 
there is this kind of element to this album and because it was for me it was one of the very first death metal albums like true traditional death metal albums i uh picked up i kind of thought this is just how death metal was meant to be that kind of like well you listen to a song and you have no idea quite what happened but there's a few memorable parts and otherwise it's just a stream of great riffs like just all over the place and this album has so much of that where like after kind of the initial two like properly um brilliant tracks the album living dead and sinners bleed which are two of the more kind of immediate ones tracks like uh, evelyn and bless b have these um these bizarre sections in the middle of like five minute long tracks where we'll just go into like an atmospheric interlude and then back into like another kind of technical death metal riff um and it, it's all with this kind of fairly raw sound to it now in the Swedish death metal book Daniel Ekerov talks about it having a super clean tone to it and apparently like this was a result of like putting way more kind of mids in the mix just turning all the mids to full and I guess it's quite a clear sound but when when I say like a clean sounding album clandestine's not what I picture um <laughs> I don't know it, it's it's, I guess it's clear in as much you can hear everything going on. You can hear all the complexity in the guitars, particularly in the drum work. The like you can see like Nicky Anderson was pushing himself here. His drum performance is completely like the the focus of the album for me. There's all these amazing kind of fills like throughout every trap. The and he's just never sort of consistently doing one thing. He's such a varied player. But with that taking influence and that kind of atheist kind of thing, the, the guitar duo of um, Ulf Sederland and Alex Heelan just can't really keep up, as far as I can tell. Like, Alex's solos, like, are, are just very rough and kind of... Like, there's nothing... There's no leads on this, given the space that Left Hand Path, the, the title track, was given. They're far more just, like, bursts of, like, interesting, like, quick melodies rather than, like, these huge... Like, the huge build-up like that. Um, and you can kind of tell the rest of the band are sort of hanging on for dear life with these, these incredible structures. Interesting as well, like, the lyrics got more interesting on this album, going down a bit more of a kind of ethereal vibe rather than just the straight up zombies and gore of left hand path like it's interesting so this is i'm talking about this in terms of transitional albums and realize that i kind of the way i went into this is thinking well clandestine and left hand path are you know of the same kind of mold and wolverine blues is where we get the massive transition but actually there sort of was like a a kind of big transition between these first two i think there there is a lot to be said about clandestine that it is absolutely brilliant i think for me i almost prefer it to the debut as much as that is certainly heresy uh to say matt, matt wilberley has called me out on this in the past and and in many ways he's right like and i think a big thing that means the debut will always have the edge over clandestine is the vocal performance so nicky anderson never wanted to do the vocals as far as i can tell like they tried to get other people in probably should have had uh lg in the band at the time but ended up with him having to do it out of pure necessity of the other guy. The guy just wasn't wasn't good enough. But his vocal performance is just fine. It's not offensive. It's not like it's not an absolute mess or anything. It's just okay. It's it's whereas you know one of the first things you think of of Left Hand Path is that scream at the start of the album. 
this doesn't have any moments like that. But what they do do to, like, measure that out to give you something else is there's a lot of effects from the vocals, which I quite enjoy. Like, a lot of these, like, super, like, pitch-shifted vocals thrown in there. Something that went very out of vogue in death metal after this point. But, you know, in the early days, was something that was kind of accepted of throwing weird effects in there, which I, I thoroughly enjoy. And then spicing the film up by um, throwing in a load of clips, film, album up, by throwing a load of clips from films. So, like, the opening track, Living Dead, has a load of great um, samples from Mask of the Red Death, like, mainly taken from the speech at the end of the film, just loads of individual lines that sound sound incredible, as well as, well as um, moments from uh, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Rope and The Mummy from 1932. The, the line I particularly like is the, the one from Rope of, go ahead, uh, I hope you like what you see. Like, that's... I don't know, that, that, those bits I think actually really work. I'm not always the biggest fan of samples in songs, but these these small additions um, really add something to the sound of this album. So there is an interesting sort of addition to the band, despite the loss of LG on this album, where we have uh, Lars Rosenberg of Carbonized playing bass, who you might remember from the previous episode also played bass on Therion's Felly. And he has a couple of writing credits on those the tracks two and three, so the ones with the more atmospheric moments. So who knows if he was the one bringing that sort of influence in the band. But you can kind of see, like, going through the writing credits, it is mainly Nicky steering the ship. He's he's sort of credited on almost every track. Then sort of second him, Uffe is, is on quite a few of them. And then finally Alex, I think his only credit on the album is... Um, is lyrics for Living Dead, otherwise, um, otherwise, every like, yeah, otherwise, not not kind of credited with much, which is kind of interesting, as he seems to be like the universal sort of constant in the band all the way from the early days right through to sort of where entombed are now, but like, yeah, never had a huge amount of um, of writing credits, so pretty just a guy who's really easy to work with, I guess. And this this kind of gets exacerbated apparently into the uh, the EP that would follow this album. Um, it like the whole thing was recorded uh, by Uffe and and Nicky. That that's like um, sorry, I'm forgetting the name of it. The Stranger Aliens EP. Um, yeah, and that that's just the two of them in studio. Like they didn't even bring the other guys along. So Clandestine sits in a really interesting place for me because. There are so many kind of obvious flaws with it. Like, the band themselves, I think, uh, still to this day, are kind of really frustrated by the album. Um, like, in that in the book, Evay's um, credited saying, it, you know, it, it felt like it felt like all the songs were too fast and we weren't good enough at playing them, and the vocal approach doesn't sound as good as it should. And it, this whole kind of feeling of, like... But then again, all those things... Are kind of why I love it like I love the fact it is this kind of completely over ambitious uh piece of early death metal it's that kind of sound you only get in old 90s albums you're never gonna hear a band this kind of pushing up against the limits of what they can do because now you can correct all that in studio so it will sound absolutely perfect and I mean Clandestine does sound pretty perfect to my ears, but like it, it certainly has a, a load of ambition and kind of drive to it. Like, and I, I love those hyper complex structures they went for in this. I I find them to be sort of just really engaging for a whole album. Um, I mean, 
The album starts incredibly strong. Um, it has, I guess, it has a slight dip in the second half, post like Stranger Eons, but then brings brings back really strong for the final track through the colonnades, which has like a big kind of um, like sort of build up section. In it. I mean, this song is probably the closest they get to sort of aping the opener of the first album, like putting in some more kind of melodic interlude stuff. But overall, I just I just think uh, Clandestine is an incredibly strong release, like an absolute kind of landmark in death metal. And although it maybe it will never beat um, their debut, Left Hand Path, I feel it should still be mentioned in the same breath as one of the greats from the early Swedish death metal scene. It was far ahead of what most other bands were doing at the time, particularly, as I say, that drum performance is is one of the most incredible from the early Swedish death metal scene. Like it's, like, Nicky is absolutely on fire, and you'll never hear him showing off to that level on anything again. And there's so many kind of interesting ideas, and and as I say, the, the structurally the songs are fascinating, if somewhat chaotic. <laughs> Wolverine Blues. The the band's lineup has stayed constant, except LG has rejoined them after kind of disastrous stuff on tour, never quite having control of the vocals. I, I remember in, in interviews Ufe saying he, he had to even take on vocal duties for for some of the live performances. They needed LG back and were able to uh, to bridge that gap. So once again, it's released on Earache Records. Um, it's back with uh, Thomas Scottsberg of Sunlight Studios doing the same like you would think going in to do the same thing again but actually they really kind of change things up with Wolverine Blues and it's a massively drastic musical kind of departure I, I've heard sort of Nicky saying in interviews that 
he thought it was a logical continuation from what they were doing a left-hand path. But I think, like, the huge thing with Wolverine Blues is that massive injection of kind of hard rock and blues into their sound and making the songs way more kind of straight ahead, incredibly groovy and catchy. Clandestine's not the catchiest album in the world. There's there's some really memorable moments on it, but those, those kind of structures do not lean into that at all. But what I love about this album is, despite that, despite that ter- like going to the territory of still being groovy, is it's still really, really heavy. I love that it opens with iMaster with this kind of massive squeal of feedback into this amazing riff. And then when LG's vocals come in, you're like, yes, he's back. Like, the amazing voice is back in their sound. Um, and it's just start to finish an incredibly solid album but what they're doing that's so much more interesting is just adding in so much more kind of melody and groove into that sound without without ever truly sacrificing the kind of heaviness like most these songs are like but not only like sort of heavy in a kind of brutal way but a lot of them are quite um kind of extremely dark in many ways like tracks like demon or contempt feel very kind of um, atmospheric. And again, weird thing to pull off in such a short space of time in an in- what is, at its heart, an incredibly groovy rock song. The band have continued down the route of sort of evolving their lyrical direction with more like kind of interesting concepts rather than, as I say, rather than going straight for the kind of the gore stuff. Although it's it's less of like the, the ethereal Lovecraft stuff and more into kind of a lot more social stuff in a lot of a lot of places. They've completely changed the direction, like with the album cover. Like it's 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 not your Dan Seagrave. It's a very the album cover I've always found to be a very odd choice. That kind of like square of I believe I think it's meant to be a footprint or something with like new logo, uh, like new font, mostly black cover. It's a really interesting choice. Like far more kind of uh, I guess punk than um, than kind of traditional death metal. Like definitely changing things up in that regard, but really it's it's the incorporation of like rock into the songs, like particularly moments towards the end of the album. These this becomes incredibly clear. The song it always really stood out to me on was Hollow Man, which is just so immensely bluesy. It's just like if you took kind of a blues piece but detuned it and added in some sort of slightly minor riffing into the middle of it, but all the leads in it are incredibly bluesy, uh, like. Yeah, it's just structurally like very much like a cool rock song with just a like long kind of middle eight section. As well, like it's far less the um Nikki and uh Ulf uh show for this album. Like they those two have a lot of the writing credits, but um Alex Helib wrote the lion's share of the lyrics for this album and gets writing credits on a couple of songs as well. Um and Lars Rosenberg is still with the band at this point. Um, again, plenty of writing credits on, like throughout this album. The only one who doesn't have any writing credits is LG, who I assume probably just didn't have time because he just rejoined the band. But that being said, if he's dealing with other people's lyrics on this, his vocal performance on this album is incredibly iconic. So many random lines from this uh, this album will get stuck in my head, like, constantly. His his vocal performance is absolutely spectacular. And as you not, I've not mentioned at this point, it, tragically, he passed away earlier this year. Um, and, like, he's definitely someone who 
the metal community has lost like a really legendary vocalist in him like obviously the kind of true career highlights for him are early on but he's been putting out solid death metal for years since and you know performing live with with uh entombed ad like they were still really solid as a live act in in later years and he's still an incredible vocalist late into his life so yeah R.I.P. LG, like, we've lost, definitely lost a great one there. But yeah, like, overall, Wolverine Blues is such a departure from what the band were doing. And you can kind of see that felt in the scene. It's interesting, because in Sweden, this style they were doing didn't really take off. This, this death and roll they kind of invented with, I say invented, like, we're one of the very early successes in that genre at any rate. Um, didn't really take off there, but reading through Rossing Ways to Misery, so many of the Finnish bands credited Entombed Wolverine Blues with introducing new ideas to them, like it being this absolute landmark in Finland of like, oh, this is how you insert groove into death metal. And it's what meant so many bands, like maybe maybe it's it's a bad thing in some ways. So many bands moved away from their sort of early, incredibly extreme, brutal roots, because they heard Wolverine Blues and were like, right, we're going to try putting some more of this in our sound. In um, in Sweden, there were a few others that tried it. Uh, interestingly, in uh, the Swedish death metal book, uh, one of the first bands credited was probably Furball, um, who are uh, Johan Lever, uh, early arch enemy vocalist, and uh, I think vocalist for Carnage as well. Um, he had a band sort of doing this style, but they were never quite as good as Entombed. This it's kind of the thing with with Entombed doing Wolverine Blues is they made the template for death and roll. They went from doing quite technical death metal into this this incredibly kind of groove driven rock style. But in making the template, they're one of those bands who've sort of ruined the genre for me because. It's still my favourite Death and Roll album, and I, I think many out there of you will probably agree with it. Like, it's the best one of this style. Like, Entombed themselves could never top it. Like, they've done other great ones. The next album, final album with uh, Nicky Anderson on drums, uh, Dry's Shoot Straight to Speak the Truth, is really good, but it's nowhere near as consistent as Wolverine Blues. As I say, like, there's 10 tracks start to finish that are just absolutely excellent. There's uh, some other uh, like moments that I want to mention. Like I really enjoy the use of samples throughout this album, much like the previous one. They've continued down that same route. Um, like open, like actually, two of the the most like iconic moments of the album are just random samples of the sort of before any proper vocals come in. We have the uh, "I Am the Way" from Hellraiser Three, just sort of buried in that feedback at the start and then before the kind of epic close are out of hand we get um the uh the incredible uh i am jesus christ no you're not you're dead which i finally found out the uh um what the source of that is from a movie called thou shall not kill dot 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 except which looks like a kind of really dodgy um horror from the early 80s but what's incredible is the person saying I am Jesus Christ is Sam Raimi of uh, Evil Dead fame. Which, yeah, it's just amazing to think that's his voice on this album. 
I know obviously not by by his agreement, but just, yeah, a quote I've known forever and never really knew where it was from. As I say, I've covered Entombed before on the podcast, but I really wanted to get my kind of, all my thoughts in on these two albums because they're two that were sort of super, um, f- like, formational for me. They were, a friend of mine, uh, like when I was very young, heard I was getting into death metal, you know, kind of just discovered who Carcass were and just sort of told me, all right, you've just got to buy Clandestine and Wolverine Blues. So I've got got those two and it just changed my outlook on on metal forever. And I, I, I think he was totally right in hindsight as well. Like those were a perfect start point to get into metal because the two albums, despite being one after another, two years apart by the same band, that really spread like the vast scope of kind of what you can do with death metal like clandestine is the the total like over ambitious early 90s kind of chaos and then wolverine blues is this really condensed really focused like an album that's five minutes longer than raining blood but like is just perfect start to finish and like you know you don't feel cheated by that length at all that's that's exactly what it needs to be they're, yeah, they're just two absolutely monumental albums. And I think they show that amazing thing where a band has started off and, you know, completely cemented a sound with Left Hand Path. And then within the space of, you know, four, four or five years since those earliest demos has managed to create another huge metal subgenre. Like, how many death and roll bands are there now? And I'm, Maybe they weren't the first, but if it wasn't for Wolverine Blues, no way would this subgenre be as big as it is. And, like, yeah, doing that... Like, there is out there two different subgenres that are essentially cloning Entombed. Like, it's, it's amazing. Like, two different kind of throwback genres, both taking influence from the same band. Absolutely incredible. this episode i'm not really breaking a lot of new ground a lot of the albums i'm talking about it is mainly talking about very well established bands but i feel these are interesting transitions to dwell on and maybe maybe it's just an act of self-indulgence wanting to talk about some of these artists but i mean it's fun uh so anyway the pan i'm going to talk about next is gorguts um i'm not going to go too much into the earlier career because i sort of cover that in depth on the the roadrunner episode uh, i did a while back but um yeah, so just for the quick backstory, from uh, 
from Canada, like formed mainly led by guitarist and vocalist Luke LeMay, started in 1989 and put out two albums in quite kind of rapid succession of Considered Dead, which is an excellent death metal album, if a touch derivative, and then 1993, The Erosion of Sanity, which is an album many herald as like, you know, an absolute death metal classic, and I certainly can't argue that it is a pretty incredible release. But what the sort of the really interesting transition, like they were on a path, if they'd I guess Death Metal was somewhat on the wane, but certainly if they'd kept making albums in that vein, there would have been a big audience for them. I'm sure, like, off the back of Erosion of Sanity, they had a huge following. But instead, they really took the time and the lead up to their third album, 1998's Obscura, and did something truly bizarre. So, with that album, the only member of the band who was on the previous uh, releases is Luke LeMay, as credited guitar and vocals, and he's joined by Steve Hurdle on guitar, um... Uh, also also vocals and major part of the songwriting and then Steve Clouter on bass and uh, finally Patrick Robert on drums and these four got together and put out what really in hindsight must be seen as one of the weirdest most inventive albums of the time period something that would take years to kind of really be fully appreciated now I'm sure there are those that absolutely loved it at the time but I can only imagine what this was like in 1998. We, like, this album, so rather than doing kind of more of the traditional death metal sound, instead they've gone for this incredibly um, percussive, interestingly interesting rhythmic approach with just everything seems to be going for the most odd out there choice. The vocal delivery is this really horrible strain scream for so much of it like Luke's vocals he sounds like he's in pain hitting these weird like highs that sound like his voice is cracking so much of the guitar work is this odd kind of percussive highly experimental stuff like a lot of the riffs are just um rhythmic patterns rather than rather than like you know collection of notes like a normal riff would be like uh steve hurdle is is such an inventive guitarist on this album like someone who you know had a relatively short sort of career of music this is only really his i don't think the only full length he's actually on but like he's such an inventive guitarist there is and, and I'm, I'm sure luke is equally creditable with this like both of them are doing so much which just completely the weird choice on anything. The leads and solos on this are completely bizarre, often being these like strange discordant, like atonal things, like lots of like pick tapping while sliding and things like just I'm I'm gonna try and reference certain sounds, but the point is whenever I listen to the album, I'm just overwhelmed by all the different weird noises coming in. Um and the, the bass and drum performance is equally spectacular. I mean, they're probably the bit of the album that kind of keeps it more grounded in reality with the, the guitars and, and drums getting so kind of out there. But even, like, guitars and drums, guitars and vocals getting so out there. But it's all so kind of complex and odd. But I think where Obscure really 
triumphs is that it's still atmospheric throughout. So it's an hour-long thing of like lots of tracks with these strange, discordant, like odd rhythms, all this kind of stuff. But throughout, I find it very emotionally affecting. I like so many tracks kind of really hit a deep nerve and I don't even know what kind of emotion it is it's just an album that I always feel feel completely and utterly kind of overwhelmed by on on kind of a lot of levels it took it took a long time to like fully digest this but I would say it was always something I found incredibly striking it's so so out there and it's something I think bands have taken influence from over the years like there is there is certainly more of that Gorgots sound included. Like, I mean, it's almost that kind of Gorgots dissonant uh, death metal kind of thing is almost a kind of overdone trope at the moment. But it's interesting how that didn't start becoming a thing until like 2010 and this album's from 1998. But yeah, as I say, there, there is so much to this album. It starts off so kind of heavy in your face. The opener, the title track, Obscura, is is initially completely overwhelming but then as it goes on tracks like earthly love and nostalgia do give us moments of groove to kind of grab onto both have these quite kind of memorable choruses although the, the, the grooves are still odd but they're at least something more you can latch onto whereas i find obscure itself just completely overwhelming then things take a very odd turn with um track six clouded which gets incredibly slow and kind of repetitive and there's something about that that makes it like kind of disengaging center point to the album although i've heard a lot of reviewers sort of write this off as the point where the kind of album loses it but uh, actually for me I, I find this to be the kind of the logical the grounding the, the well not logical the the atmospheric grounding the bit that really cements that kind of overwhelming feeling of despair that this album sort of uh, puts on you the band as well has taken like a really interesting kind of lyrical direction it is kind of hinted at by the cover of this this oddly lit um figure like sort of uh cross-legged in in meditation that there's clearly as as this band would go on there there is a huge influence of kind of um i i guess that kind of the world around meditation that kind of stuff like getting away from their kind of death and destruction of their early stuff into a more kind of odd place with things like later albums they would be a lot more like kind of historical focus like that was a big part of um of colored scans but obscura seems far more kind of spiritual in a lot of ways and and that that all lends into it having this very kind of alien presence it it's it's an album i'm struggling to review because it is even what 23 years past its release it's still really overwhelming like uh all the Gorgas follow-up releases are not as intense or oddball as this. Like, from wisdom to hate, kind of, kind of calms down some of these ideas and makes them a little bit more digestible. Although, if you'd never heard Obscura, I'm sure from wisdom to hate was totally overwhelming. Two thousand and one, and then let's be honest, Coloured Sands in twenty thirteen, like, just 
blew things wide open. The amount of death metal bands that then took influence from, uh, I think, that album in particular, like, the, and, and that was still building on a huge amount of the ideas from Obscura. Like, it far more feels like a follow-on from that than it does, say, Erosion of Sanity. So, Gorguts have managed to, in their, their kind of, sort of, career with large hiatuses in it, sort of having the kind of, like, a kind of, quite quiet few years between those two albums from Wisdom to Hate and Coloured Sands, they've still, like, managed to cement themselves as one of the most important death metal acts in just a few releases. And the thing I think that really did that is the transition between them being an absolutely class death metal act on the Erosion of Sanity to one of the most experimental death metal acts I've ever heard on uh, on Obscura over just the course of five years between those two albums. What's kind of really odd about this is the other members involved have so sort of little credits. Like, uh, Patrick Robert, the drummer, has no other credits on Metal Archives outside of... Um, Briefly being in uh, Negativa, the the kind of short-lived uh, project that sort of took off in Gorgat's hiatus with um, featuring uh, Steve Hurdle and um, Luke Lemay among among a few other musicians, but um, they only ever managed to put out one EP, whereas and it you know never quite had the 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 effect of Gorgat stuff because I mean people don't pay attention to EPs. But then uh Steve Cloutier, like he's he's on the next Gorguts album, but that's about it. And and then sadly uh, Steve Hurdle, he's got a few other credits, but he sadly passed away in uh in 2012. Uh, like really tragic because he was such a unique and inventive guitarist. Like I mean I only know him really from this album, but that is an automatically recognisable sound. I say I haven't even touched on this. Is is the choice of guitar tone is is so odd. Like the whole album has this very like stark, almost slightly clinical sound, but that mixed with the the kind of very chaotic percussive elements of everything just adds to the weirdness. Like it's not a super distorted album. It's a uh, it's kind of clear and bright in some ways, but still absolutely overpowering and deeply kind of upsetting. Right, I realise I'm I'm rambling about this now. Basically, Obscura is a masterpiece. You're probably already aware of that. And and you've probably already made up your mind whether you like the sound or not. Like I, I know for a lot of people it was like a bridge too far for the band. And I, I know for a lot of people they feel sort of gorgots are overrated. I guess what I'm just trying to make the point is there's certainly a huge influence um, felt throughout the scene off this kind of very brave leap by the band into really odd uncharted territories. And I, I think the transition worked out very well. And it, it certainly, you know, it was great for them to sort of at least try something this ambitious and weird. And it's kind of nice that it's, you know, found a home and an audience, like... Because I feel like a lot of bands might have tried something like this and never got noticed and just be like that kind of forgotten thing. But like, it's it's great that Gorgas can now play this music in front of like massive crowds, like and you know have people waiting with bated breath for their next album release. 
despite being this odd. Sentence from Finland. So, probably many of you will know Sentenced are kind of legendary for a few different periods in their career. So, I spoke about them before on my Finnish Death Metal episode. And if you've been reading Rotting Ways to Misery, they're a band that feature quite heavily in there. And their 1991 debut, Shadows of the Past, is kind of one of those legendary Finnish death metal albums. But what's really interesting is they go through two quite amazingly successful evolutions after this, where they've sort of realistically a band that could have gone in three different directions throughout their career, and all of which would have kind of served them well in an interesting way. So their lineup for their first three albums is pretty consistent of... Uh, Mika Tenkler on um, on guitar and vocals, like lead guitar and vocals, uh, Tanay Java on bass, uh, Vesa Ranta on drums, and Sammy Lopka on, on guitar. And what was amazing about these guys in the early days was they could just, they were one of the best group of musicians of those early 90s Finnish bands. Like uh, Mika was an incredible lead guitarist, quite a good vocalist as well. But it seemed in the run-up to their second album, North From Here, in 1993, he decided to hand off vocal duties to Tanali Java so he could more focus on his lead guitar writing and and leave someone who, you know, to all intents and purposes, turned out to be a much better frontman anyway in charge of the kind of vocal approach for the band. And what's really brilliant about Sentenced with their second album is you can see them growing from all those early influences and then taking on a whole host of all the stuff that's going on in the scene at the time and just melding that one together into one like masterful super weird album with north from here so as i said they started off life as this really kind of brutal for the time death metal band but then the band members started getting into stuff like the the burgeoning black metal scene so you know liking things like um 
like Baffery and Master's Hammer and, you know, even, I guess, like Beherita sort of going in their more local area at this point in time. And started taking sort of those influences in with their, like, also love of technical death metal bands like kind of Atheist, I think, is one one they've certainly cited as an influence. So all that's going on at once. And what we get is... I, I guess it's got to be classified as a melodic death metal album, um, but it sits in the same place. Actually, an album it really puts me in mind of, not just because of the the green cover, is Children of Odom's Hate Breeder, although this is long before that in 1993. Also on Spine Farm Records, uh, interestingly enough. But it's something where I guess it's melodic death metal, but there's a lot of black metal in there as well, especially like kind of the more melodic end of that. And there's a lot of like hyper technical stuff that sits quite outside of melodic death metal. You'd certainly never call Atheist a melodic death metal band. Um, the Children of Bodom comparison is in the kind of technical shredding guitar work and the kind of somewhat the overall atmosphere, although sentence don't have the keyboard element of um of children of bone there are keys in this album but they are not you, you don't have that kind of yanni warman style like masterful keyboard shred this is four guys clearly very much with the thought of reproducing a lot of these songs live and the album just has this amazing kind of pace and proficiency to to it like from the opening riff of the the first track my sky is darker than thine we just get like face melting lead after face melting lead like for 1993 this is so monumentally complex especially for someone like finland where a lot of the bands aren't really famed for being particularly technical like that wasn't the kind of takeaway from the finnish death metal scene like certainly has the finnish level of like creativity and weirdness but um yeah so like this opener is this complete like shred fest where where the two guitarists are just going full pelt throughout then things take a kind of more interesting turn on the second track wings where in the middle of the album there's this kind of atmospheric break in the middle mainly led by the bass guitar that gets really kind of dark and sinister like quite like a brief period of time creating a real um, dark ambience and then fields of blood we get this kind of uh, hint of things to come it opens with this proper hard rock kind of influenced guitar, guitar solo showing they got the chops to do the kind of more melodic lead stuff as well but as soon as that solo ends we go straight into the this full-blown like atheist but with an even nastier edge kind of set of riffs with the this really loud bass in there I was reading the chapter about them in uh, Rossing Ways to Misery, where Tunnelly was credited with sort of saying they were playing beyond their ability on this album. But where I've said that about a few bands recently, this album doesn't sound like this. This just sounds incredibly tight. If they were playing past their means, and like this is 1993, like you're not going to have like studio trickeried your way into like rounding off the mistakes. It sounds like it sounded like this band were playing this and like it's got a really lovely clean capture as well like um hence why i feel it's so well recorded if you compare it to like their debut which is got a pretty raw sound to it the guitar tone they've gone for in this album is totally different it's so much kind of cleaner but like in that kind of clarity this album has a weird, and it's hard to define quite how they make it like this, but it's got a very, like, frostbitten edge to it. It's like this band are from the north of Finland, like, all their band photos of them sitting around in the snow. Like, it has that kind of 
frozen northern black metal kind of element to it like something about that kind of sound is so so intrinsically kind of tied to the band where it just i know this this sounds really bleak and foreboding in that way despite being as i say like a real technical shreddy album in a lot of places yeah so north from here is this this total evolution of sound like especially with the vocalist change as well the the change of the change of kind of genre to a slight extent and and this completely different sort of focus on where they want the the kind of songs to go um it, it for me it is a massive leap but that actually isn't the leap of for the band i wanted to talk about it's 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 the next one they do after this so what's really interesting is all the way along this kind of evolution they're going on um they still seem to be critically kind of successful there their first album did very well from their obviously 1991 they're early on in the finished scene getting a full length out and it's an incredibly accomplished one one that i i just rated incredibly highly to this day despite the fact the band sort of rubbished it in interviews when on the lead up to north from here but then I guess that's what teenagers are going to be like if they've changed their their style. They're going to say, oh, no, no, you, you don't like the old... You, you've got to hear the new thing. It's much better than the old thing. Um, I don't think they have some issues with it, like particularly uh, slag off the cover a lot. Although, realistically, North From Here, other than being a cool colour, is like kind of a terrible cover. <laughs> like It's just a green filter on a picture of a tree. Like It's got an aesthetic to it. It, it very much fits with the sound. But yeah, as it stands, like... I made the Children of Bodom comparison, and, and maybe that's unfair in some ways, but I do think if you're someone who really loves, particularly those first two Children of Bodom albums, North From Here should really appeal. It's got that same kind of shred factor. It's just, like, and there's sort of a similar, like, approach to songwriting, a similar, like, chasing of, of like, ridiculous kind of um, standard of musicianship while still creating catchy really engaging songs it's just way more evil and gnarly than that and and again actually same can be said for the bits that sound kind of atheist inspired it's kind of got bits that sound like atheist albeit not quite to their level of musicianship a million miles off though but it all sounds more evil it's just a fantastically evil sounding record <laughs> Yeah. 
so following that, they released an EP that sort of capped off that sound, and then further two years later, they put out 1995's A Mock, which once again shifted styles, so this time taking on influence from a lot of the stuff that was sort of growing at the time, Paradise Lost Gothic and Fields of the Nephilim. Paradise Lost Gothic seems to be referenced a huge amount in the uh, Finnish Death Metal book, as just seemingly that album, much like something like Wolverine Blues, had a huge influence on the scene at the time. But sort of combining that with some of their, like, prog rock, like in the vein of Rush and New Wave of British heavy metal influence stuff, put out an album that, um, again, I find somewhat hard to, to sort of classify. It's, um, it's kind of, like, hard rocky in places. Like, sort of, there's some, like, as I say, all those influences are in there, but it's still kind of got a bit of a hangover of still being death metal in there. Like, Tanani Java has this, he's completely changed up his vocal approach once again. Like, um, he sounds now, for kind of, again, using a slightly obscure comparison, he sounds really like the vocalist of Rebellion does on the heavier bits of the Arise album, where he's actually, like, kind of screaming. So he's mainly screaming on this, although they are joined by a guest vocalist doing some, like, kind of clean female vocals in the background uh, on a few tracks to lend some more melody. Um... Guitarist Mika Tenkala has well and truly um, l like lent into his kind of classic rock style lead guitaring in this. But the songs, like, they vary throughout the album in terms of how heavy they are. Like, the first two tracks, This War and Over and Phoenix, um, have have some serious weight to it. As the, as the album goes on, things get a bit more... Um, kind of more rocky in places and then we tracks towards the end like moon magic are very heavily influenced by that kind of um more doomy like i mean doomy kind of like doomy industrial whatever you call feels the nephilim i'm blanking what the name of that genre that kind of sound like that more of that's coming in there we still have like a lot of the amazing musicianship on display, but it's not as in your face as it was for North from here. For a start, like uh, Donnelly's bass has been mixed way down from where it was in North from here. It is kind of completely overpowering in the mix, and fair play to him. Like he is, he's really going above and beyond in his playing. Things are a bit more simplified here. Same with the rhythm guitar parts. There isn't so much of this. Like every riff is a shred. But it's still, like, you can tell the band is is still incredibly competent at what they do. The album cover, like, is is another weird one of, like, a kind of plain red cover with this sort of image that looks like a kind of actual, like, etching or, like, you know, photo of a carved bronze thing of a uh, an animal being torn apart by two lions. Which, again, like... North from here, you kind of look at that and you get a good feel of what it's going to be, I guess. Maybe not so technical. The the kind of fragments of the... Oh, sorry, fragments of the past. Shadows of the Past, the first album, has this complete, like, uh, like Dan Seagrave worship cover. You know exactly what you're getting with this. With this one, I'd say it's much harder to guess where this is ending up. Especially as, it, you know, it is making that move towards kind of a a more classic rocky sound or at least classic rock influence sound the the kind of execution of it is absolutely fantastic though i i find this incredibly engaging i think it's it kind of keeps my interest throughout it doesn't fall into too many tropes of the genre see um metal archives has them down as like a gothic metal band at this period in time and 
I can somewhat see that, but I think that's an unfair description. I wouldn't expect gothic metal to be quite so kind of riffy and lead guitar driven. Overall, Amok's just this amazing sort of direction change from the band, where as I say, they could have gone off in three different directions easily here. If they kept doing the Shadows of the Past thing, I mean, maybe people would have eventually got bored with it, but they certainly could have got another two high-selling albums just doing the kind of fairly brutal early death metal sound like they had the interest north from here was something wildly original and if they continued down that path and maybe you know made it a touch more cheesy over time they they could have been children of odin before children of odin were and then a mock like well this is the sound they sort of went with and sentence did have a long and like you know well-loved career up to their um they released another five albums after this so uh, Last one in 2005, the Funeral album, keeping a relatively consistent lineup over that time. So, Tonelli Java would quit the band in around 1996 and head off to being all sorts of interesting stuff. Like, spent a lot of time with Impaled Nazarene, who actually had already joined ahead of, um, like, sort of around the time North from Here came out, and then then his um, his project was just the vocalist Black League. Um, Sadly, uh, guitarist uh, Mika Tenkula um, passed away in 2009, which very much spelt the end for the band. But um, both Sammy and uh, Vesa went on to do a lot of stuff. Vesa kind of well-credited as, um, as a photographer outside the band and doing a lot of work for other bands. And um, Sammy was, uh, it was, it was, is the guitarist for CYPCK, who... Listeners who have been with us for a very long time might remember Rob bringing that that in on a very early episode of the podcast, but like a band who kind of lean into like the industrial metal sound, but in a kind of very bleak, doomy way. Really interesting band. Um, yeah, definitely one worth checking out if you like that kind of like heavy, bleak industrial sound. So the band kept on going on to interesting things, but what, why I think this is such a fantastic uh, kind of direction change and worth commenting on is because they sort of nailed that move between between two sounds where they had something, with all three of these releases, they had something that was sort of popular and loved by fans and managed to keep kind of evolving it in such a way that didn't piss people off. I'm sure, I'm sure there were massive detractors and I'm sure many of you listening will we've sort of tapped out of one of these albums along the route, um, unless you are still like sort of a big fan of the band. But I think every era of Sentence is well worth sort of revisiting. I know um, Requiem Metal many, many years ago did a whole podcast dedicated to Tenley Java because his career has sort of been so interesting over the years. Like, And that's definitely, if you want to dive further, that's well worth a listen. But... Yeah, I just think this is another one of those transitions that really sort of made sense for the band. And, you know, fair play to them, they were, they were sort of following their influences at the time. They were all extremely young, even by this this third album. And that, that constantly changing landscape, like, they're not always going to want to stick with death metal. And particularly with the Finnish scene, where, honestly, no band from that first wave remained doing death metal sort of successfully. Like... Almost every band I ever called it quits or morphed to another style 
really it's only Sentence and Amorphis who managed to keep that going and, and sort of keep an audience with them and keep um, keep kind of evolving. Whereas like most of the others that sort of stopped or, or you know, petered out after two or three releases, yeah, they, and, and maybe that's just due to the death of sort of death metal or at least death metal as a mainstream phenomena. But it's just interesting with that, that kind of area and that genre that the bands had to do something like this to kind of survive it. So the next band are one I've got into really recently, despite being hugely well-known. Um, this is Samael from Switzerland, who have been around for absolutely ages. Formed in 1987, um, putting out their first album, Worshipping, in 1991. This is another band who, um, I'd say they got a vaguely similar trajectory to Paradise Lost, where sort of started out as a very heavy band, and then eventually made a shift into like electronic industrial stuff. The only difference is they never shifted back to the kind of heavy sound. They sort of stuck with that. But um, in that time, they've had like a really consistent lineup. Um, sort of drummer and uh, drummer XY and vocalist and guitarist Vorf. Uh, I think our brothers have been in the band since like the like since the inception and are still going going strong with it uh yeah yeah his brothers certainly uh, they are brothers um so the two albums i want to cover are 
So going past that early on, Worship Him, which is the one release of theirs I kind of was familiar with, which is pretty good. It's um, it's kind of very rough around the edges and simplistic, but very dark and heavy. But the, the, the kind of period I want to cover today is two albums on from that. Ceremony, starting with two albums on from it anyway, Ceremony of Opposites from 1994, which from the cover you can see was taking no prisoners whatsoever. The front cover image is this kind of face that I assume is meant to be Jesus-like, or I might just be reading that into this, of this like eyeless figure with hundreds of nails driven into his forehead. And... The best way I can describe this, this album to start with is evil as hell. So much like, I don't know if I mentioned this with Mock, but much like with Sentence, they, they, the band have upgraded to Century Media Records, who I think at this point in time were starting to do well for themselves. Am I right in thinking it was them that, uh, no, it wouldn't be them that did well out of Feli. One of the other albums we've covered in this series was, a, was an important one for Century Media as well. But yeah, so... Like, moving on from that, um, Ceremony of Opposites, the core sound of this is this amazingly simple, like, uh, again, they're, they're a band of class as black metal, but to my mind, this is, this really feels like death metal riffing, but with incredibly black metal vocals. So they've recruited a keyboard player into the lineup for this, but the keyboard player adds very very simple subtle keyboard work over a lot of these tracks and just the main guitar work of so on top of that there's uh Worf is doing guitar and vocals and then we have a bass player as well so it's just like a power trio and then keyboards and these these riffs are so simplistic often just like one groovy rhythmic passage that's often kind of repeated quite a few times maybe you know, leaning into that industrial sound they'd take up, but with this excellent, harsh vocal delivery over it. I think that's what really sells this album for me, is, like, the vocals just sound so incredibly evil and gnarly. Like, they've just got such an, a brilliant rasp of them. It's a shame in many ways that Forth uh, isn't doing heavier music because his voice is just so kind of suited to that. But, yeah, as I say, it's musically so simplistic, but it's just an absolute sort of triumph of composition and tone the the album is so incredibly engaging over its 10 tracks like just re I, I can't stop harping on it just being horribly evil it's such a dark sounding album but immediately catchy you can see why it's like would work well for a label like century media because once you get past the kind of the kind of cover imagery and that this is a really memorable, fun album. It just sounds kind of really kind of potent and nasty at the same time. Yeah, just an amazingly put together thing. <laughs> Be your messiah on earth And to sit 
so much like with many of these bands, they were, these bands we've been talking about, they'd follow up two years later with the massive direction change. So they put out the Rebellion EP in the middle, which I'm not familiar with, so I don't know whether that really explains this change. Bit of a failure on my research there. But I wanted to talk about this because I find the change between Passage and Ceremony of Opposites so kind of amazing because it's so subtle but totally drastic like ceremony offices is a like very much feels like the the most stripped back you can make black and death metal while still making it incredibly engaging whereas passage is well and truly industrial metal but is only a subtle change to the sound in that so they've recruited second guitarist uh chaos um to kind of flesh out the lineup um and XY is at, like now playing keyboards and the drums are programmed. Um, with that, though, the the sound has gone from very simplistic guitar work to, once again, very simplistic, riffy, catchy, groove-driven guitar work, but with just this heavy industrial feel. And I think those programmed drums probably, probably lean into that. It has like a massive kind of electronic feel to this. Also, the, the kind of the big change is now the keyboards are front and center in the mix like with the opening track um rain you sort of you have the first couple of riffs that are a bit more like kind of heavy and maybe of the old style and then when it gets to the chorus these huge like spikes of synths come in um and it makes the whole kind of the vocal delivery and everything in the chorus feel more catchy feel more like all right here's the here's the kind of like the dance bit of the industrial song and the album very much continues on in that vein. It's it's sort of, as I say, it's, it's got the same brilliantly simple approach. It's just masterfully catchy. Um, I also, like, they very much changed up their aesthetic with this. Like, the, the album cover is is just, like, an image of the moon. It's, um, again, very simplistic. Uh, but, yeah, whereas the first cover, like, the cover of Ceremony of Opposites is this really immediately striking thing passage is so much more sort of straightforward and kind of a bit more mystical as well um they seem to have got into far more kind of philosophical leanings with um with the kind of the lyric writing of this i think they're playing with some interesting ideas and that and it is that move from kind of the more aggressive lyrical approach of ceremony opposites to the passage being a bit more kind of political and spiritual type stuff there's and and it fits it fits with the style more like this um this album doesn't feel evil in the way ceremony of opposites did it's more um it's more uplifting in a lot of ways and i don't know whether that's necessarily what they're going for but some of these songs have these like big vibrant choruses with like those massive bursts of synth it's hard not to find them yeah kind of so much more joyous whereas um ceremony of opposites is scary but as i say it's such a subtle change to their writing like i i swear if you gave it the production of the previous album and removed the synths songs from this could fit on that there is but it, it is like there would be two different crowds who love the albums like like they there will be a crowd who love everything before this and a crowd who really like everything afterwards and i think the overlap of people like both will be much smaller. Personally, I, I think both sides of the style are amazing, and I I highly advise everyone to go sort of give both a go. But I think it's likely 
you're probably already a fan of one or the other, especially if you've if you've happened to have heard both. But yeah, Passage I think is an incredible evolution for a band in that kind of shorter period of two years. <laughs> So for whatever reason, in this episode, I seem to be dwelling on primarily incredibly well-known stuff. I promise in the next episode I'll go for something way more obscure. Um, but <laughs> for whatever reason, it, it seemed to work well for this one. So to round up this episode, the last band I want to go over who've had like a massive kind of direction shift is one that like you'll be well aware of. Uh, we're going to be talking about Behemoth and the, again, the shift between third and fourth album. So... Behemoth have been the project of Nurgle, like, as vocalist and guitarist since all the way back in 1991, which is hard to believe, because I can't imagine for uh, for anyone listening, they came onto your radar much before about 2004. Possibly you knew about them in uh, the Zokia Cultus or Thelma Six era, but I think before that, they were, they were fairly underground. I mean, even, even Demigod took a while to kind of promote them to the sort of level they, they're at now. But as many of you know, they started off as quite a kind of raw black metal band with their, their early albums, uh, Storming Near the Baltic and Grom, which I've never really been able to get massively into. But in researching this, I kind of wanted to cover their fourth album, Satanica. So I went back to the album before that, uh, Pandemonic Incarnations, which... Pandemonic Incantations, which I've never really listened to before. And actually, it's kind of great. It sounds like a totally different band. But interestingly, it sounds like a fairly different band to the, the, the albums two and three years before it. So Pandemonic Incantations came out in 1998. And the major change to the band is the addition of, like, the critical member, the kind of X factor for early Behemoth is getting Inferno in on drums. Like, 
so with their earlier stuff the percussion was not not at the same level whereas this guy came in and already his drumming chops were incredible i don't know how well sort of um you remember this early era but like when behemoth were taking off it was always a case of them and nile i remember were brought up a lot in parallel and it was always a case of talking like oh these bands are great but look at their drummers like george goliath versus versus inferno um and really, he hadn't done a great deal before this. He's on the album Rebel Souls by Damnation, but that's like his only kind of um, notable credit pre-Behemoth. So I imagine he was a fairly young guy at the time. Well, this is uh, 1998. So yeah, like kind of, kind of in his very early 20s. But yeah, already his drumming prowess is amazing. But other than that, that's kind of the only recognisable thing of this album of what later Behemoth would be. Nurgle's vocal approach is totally different, and the songwriting has none of the death metal. Like, they are still at this point well and truly a black metal band. But the big change is, going from that kind of more raw approach to what we have on this is very dissection worship. Like, if you look at a track like The Five Wing Star, the biggest criticism of this album is that song is too close to Fawns of Crimson Death. Like, the amount they're sort of lifting from that style, especially the lead guitar playing, is is incredible. And then even, even like, vocally sort of worshipping that sort of era. But it is amazing listening back to the vocals. Like, Nurgle is totally unrecognisable. And I know his vocals have sort of changed over time, but if you go to an album like Satanica and then look at the latest one, you still tell it's the same guy. This, I can't hear it at all. Um... There are influences from other bits of black metal. Um, like, there's a track called Passes Like a Funeral, which has some amazing kind of mayhemisms in the vocals. And I mean that, like, kind of Don Mystery uh, era mayhem. Like, it's got a lot of those kind of weird tinges and choices in there. Um, they're, they're very much wearing their influences on their sleeves. Um, but it is so competently pulled off. The the kind of the musicianship and and sort of the whole production everything is just it's a really amazing capture of the band and like they are all kind of really talented players at this point in time as i say like inferno's really the kind of um the the like x factor to it but nurgle's putting an incredible performance um not much to say about bass player Mephistos. His only real musical credit is is being in Behemoth at this point in time. We do have a couple of like subtle keyboard passages as- added in, which are um, uh, play- performed by uh, Praetor Weltrowski, who um, is a co-author of Nogel's biography and has a sort of on-and-off history with the band. But as I say, this is, this is one of those albums which, for 1998, ever so slightly derivative, but still kind of, you know... In the burgeoning scene, it's not that far behind a lot of the bands it's taking influence from. And where, whereas they like say a track like "Driven by the Five Wing Star" sounds very much like another song, a song like "In My pa- uh, In My Pandemetrum," um, oh god, that's definitely wrong. The one with the really long word beginning with "p" in it, it is absolutely brilliant. And 
The album also has like a really cool intro to it. Actually, that's the bit where we start getting some of the the aesthetic that would later go into be Behemoth, like that that level of um, I don't know grandiosity, like the the kind of <laughs> for want of a better word, almost like pompous over the topness of their their kind of style, like. That's starting to come in here. I don't think at this point in time, I don't think the image is quite changed. I think that will happen overnight. Like, that kind of, their look, their kind of, this, like, the the Imperial War Machine kind of um, style they have. This is far more kind of frilly shirt and white makeup, like, early um, primordial look. Like, yeah, very, very different style. Still still rooted in the classic era black metal. But as I say, if you've never given this one a go, and so especially if you didn't enjoy those first few, this album has a very different feel. And I, I found it really enjoyable, especially as it's something I, I went into expecting very little. Like, it's actually really well put together. <laughs> course of a year something incredible happens um they put out satanica their uh, fourth full-length um, album on avant-garde music apparently um and the behemoth we now know is just born overnight like this album i mean like i saw them live oh god it's probably about five years ago now but they still have a track off this is like proper live staple for them and just everything has changed like suddenly there is the huge like death metal drive in their sound suddenly the, the look has all changed. In, in this particular um, band photo, they're kind of dressed like um, Emperor and Prometheus era with like the trench coats and sunglasses. But you know it's like, it's moving towards the kind of um, where we're going to go with like the kind of ridiculous over-the-topness, particularly it's it's utterly stupid cover of, I believe it's Nurgle on the front cover growing like a massive horn. Um and yeah, the death metal has appeared overnight. Um, Inferno absolutely dominates the mix of this album. the The first track, uh, 
decade of Estasham. I think that's how... <laughs> God knows there's so many non-English characters in this. But the, the opening track, the single, the album, um, is just a complete... Like, it's just him showing off just how much he can blast and be super interesting while blasting. The... Um, the kind of the guitar tone is suddenly this like really solid hefty death metal tone like i believe the band's probably massively down tuned to do this the whole kind of lyrical aesthetic is suddenly this um very philosophically based like super in-depth kind of occult stuff so at this point they will team up with um writer uh christoph Azarich, who um who was like a long collaborator with the band he's he collaborated on the lyrics for all the albums uh, up to and including the uh the satanist but i think he had like a huge part in this one so the band suddenly had like what at the time felt like a very inventive aesthetic of kind of this really well researched like heavily um like, like incredibly es esoteric and extremely hard to understand kind of still rooted obviously very much in satanism but over a top kind of occultness and you know it, it definitely gave the band like a terrifying edge when i was like first getting into them as a kid this is one of my my early albums of theirs i got and i, I was just amazed by like the, the kind of i don't know the clear research they put into this and sort of how deeply into that aesthetic they seem to be um no i don't know how much it's like how much of it's a show or not, but certainly as someone consuming the product, like, it really worked. Then, like, the album sort of moves on from that, that opener into the powerhouse of Lamb, which is just this song that is, as I say, like, just entirely built around Inferno's, like, drum performance with this really simple kind of, like, chugging guitar lines over this, like, sort of start-stop blast beat, only really sort of giving way to the other musicians in the band when it goes into the kind of solo section in the middle in which Noble produces like a, like one of my favourite guitar solos of his, especially from the early days where he wasn't the most flashy or technical guitarist in the world. The middle of the album kind of follows on in this vein of this, this brilliantly crafted black and death metal, still extremely heavy and punishing. And I, I think to this day, Satanica still stands as one of Behemoth's heavier releases, like uh, along with like Zuki Occultus and um, and Demigod, and what I think it has over, especially like Zuki Occultus, is is variety. It's it's an incredibly interesting album. So as I say we we've got those tracks where it is that more black and death metal fury, but as we enter into like the final ten minutes of the album, we get some real oddballs. One of my favourite Behemoth tracks to this day because it's so bloody weird is the alchemist stream i don't think it's one the band ever particularly cared for i don't i don't think it ever saw the light of day live but it has it starts off as quite a kind of catchy version of the sound they were going for on this album but then the second half takes this bizarre melodic turn after this like odd bass break where it just goes into these kind of odd like in like these odd like disconnected melodies uh, it's just really really awesome and I, I remember just being blown away by that kind of the, the kind of bizarre songwriting of this track when i first came across it and then to close out strong we have a chant for assassin 2000 apparently they seem to have dropped the 2000 from the end of it um 
in in later later versions of the album but there's a lot of extraneous stuff in there and this is the track that i say still seems to appear in either shorter live sets of the band which is just this amazing kind of five minutes of building up over this one really odd riff like less this this track less a show of inferno stuff and more more kind of just all leaning into this progression of this one weird riff so my kind of uh controversial opinion on behemoth is i do think this album is where they peaked they certainly got better production jobs like demigod sounds fantastic as an album whereas satanica they were clearly struggling to record inferno's drum performance like this does sound a bit kind of just something sounds a bit wrong with this album in that regard but i think the riffs just shine through on it it really is incredibly engaging in that front they're a band i've sort of tailed off on a, I, I hated the new album and just I, I guess i've sort of got some hope they might put out something i'm interested in but i i think in recent years i've been less and less into them and it is this kind of period between this and demigod i like really love um the two albums in between that are kind of... I, I think they were still sort of finding the sound, especially like Thelma 6 came out quite soon after this and felt a bit more rushed. This seemed like... This album to me, though, seemed like this This idea just came together overnight. They were just able to, as I say, in the course of just over a year, put out a 35-minute-long album where they just totally changed direction and moved from being clearly what was something that would end up as like a footnote of 90s black metal into the most successful black metal influenced band going at the moment i i think they're they're bigger than the dimmy borger and cradle of filth kind of crowd even at this point um there's some awkwardness there's some things they haven't got right aforementioned that but weird adding 2000 to the end of a song title in the credits um inferno's name is not inferno it is inferno.666.com um which has to be possibly the funniest um the funniest black metal name i've ever seen <laughs> um and yeah, I guess they hadn't quite got down the visual aesthetic, although the album cover is certainly something they'd continue on in that vein for pretty much the rest of their their releases. I think and it it's the way they've sort of changed their pretensions. They've become like they were always a pretentious band. Black metal is a very pretentious genre. But they've sort of found a way a way to kind of twist that it going into the two thousands, which would make them appear incredibly cool to teenagers. Um I don't really mean as much an insult, insult as it sounds, but it, you know, there's certainly why they've taken off in the way they did. It's it's, it's certainly why I bought it into them in the, in like kind of my early years of getting into metal because they just seemed incredibly cool in a kind of it just just looking at them, which yeah, <laughs> kind of a big selling point for black metal. And if you haven't ever gone back this far in Behemoth's catalogue, I'd highly advise it. I think this this kind of period of the the previous album and this is is really interesting. As I say, I, I feel Satanica is like an absolute kind of peak of brutality for them. And it's so interesting to think how things would change for the band over time, sort of getting huge off the back of this. Well, not off the back of this, it wouldn't get huge off an album for quite a while. But how maybe the sound has become sort of watered down in a certain way, or maybe it's just something that's changed as they've got better as playing. Like, like eventually Nurgle will finally find like counterparts who can sort of add to the guitar and bass throughout the album. Whereas like 
none of these sort of early additional musicians other than obviously Inferno last that long with them. But yeah, this this is really an incredible artifact at this point in time. Like, I can't imagine how monumental this must have sounded to people who were sort of, you know, on the pulse and picking this up in 1999. It's just, yeah, fantastically unique and brutal release. Although the uniqueness, again, somewhat watered down by it being such a kind of common thing now, this like sort of black and death metal sound has been aped by a huge amount. But I think these guys were kind of early on in finding it at this point. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this will be one of those things where you can point to like two or three albums that were five years ahead of this that they totally kind of took influence from that maybe weren't so big as like sort of the influence they took from, you know, kind of like the Somber Lane and stuff like that on the previous album. But... Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting anyway. Yeah, so I, as I say, I know I've been talking about like really popular bands on this episode um, and I, I feel somewhat guilty sort of focusing on those ones. But I've always wanted to do a proper review of Satanica and, and Obscure and stuff like that. So thanks for sticking with me through the kind of self-indulgence there. I, there there's without question much, much better dissections of these albums out there. Um, sorry for the rambling on that. But, yeah, so I think for the, the next couple of episodes to make my life easy and just to give me a chance to talk about um, some albums that I've been struggling to fit into a format, I'm going to do a few episodes just listing kind of very recent releases I'm into. So stuff from 2021 and then, like, you know, a couple of years before, things that, that kind of missed our year-end roundup. So if you've got any suggestions of um, of really good albums from those, those time periods, like... Uh, hit me up yeah if you new releases that are really interesting and you think might might appeal to me please get in touch or if you've got as i say the holy grail of these transitional albums um a band that went from kind of softer to really heavy if you can find one where they did both sides of that sound well especially where it's like one of those examples where it's like an extended career you know like say like the fairy on thing where they did four in one style and then like seven or eight in the other yeah, if you can find a great example of that, please get in touch. So you can get email me, philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com. We're at Breakfast Metal on Twitter um, and Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, I hopefully should be able to respond to the message I get through any of those. Um, yeah, and thanks a lot for listening. Get in the way. The life is the life.